This is the Fly Culture Podcast with me, your host, Pete Tigers. I first spoke with Andrew Fowler when I found his blog some six years ago. I asked him to write an article for my online fishing magazine, Eat Sleep Fish. Since then he has written two articles for Fly Culture, continued his excellent blog, Trutter Blog, and written a book, Stipple Beauties, about fishing the trout streams of Natal in South Africa. I was thrilled to hear he would be heading to the UK and jumped at the chance to meet him at long last and learn about the fishing that means so much to him. Welcome everyone to the very latest Fly Culture podcast. It's a case of really being careful for what you wish for. On the last few podcasts, I've been praying for more rain. We've had rain, we've had rain, we've had rain, and even more rain. So it's rendered the streams unfishable. It's the 28th of September. We shut on the River Tour on the 30th. I'm praying we've got a little break in the weather that we can go try and fish for some salmon. It's still a little bit too high to fish for some trout and bits and pieces like that. So I think it's probably salmon's going to be the way of things for us. So last few days, um, a little bit sad about it, but when I reflect on the season, actually I'm pretty happy with it. The trout fishing has been really, really fantastic. I managed to catch a salmon just a few days ago as well as the river was starting to rise. I had another couple come and have a look at me as well, which didn't stick. So that was really, really exciting. And we've got more rain coming later today, which I think probably is going to make life a little bit more tricky. So I think we've got a very, very small window of opportunity. But I'm really, really excited to do this podcast because it's somebody I've known for, I think I say on the introduction, six years, it's probably longer than that. And that's Andrew Fowler, who's come over from um, South Africa um, to do some fishing and some other meetings and stuff like that. And it turns out that he's heading down to the West Country, and I'm really pleased to actually meet him. As always is the case with these podcasts, we're going to try and do some fishing afterwards as well. So I'm going to take him to my beloved river tour but Andrew it's really cool to have you down here and, and to meet you at, at last in in person. Yeah, likewise Peter it's, it's great to be here it's uh, yeah it's been quite a while and I, I didn't know that we'd ever get the opportunity to meet so it's fantastic to be here yeah. That's the great thing about well the, the, the online magazine like I say in the introduction when we first met at Eat Sleep Fish and I, I happened to find your your um, blog Trutter blog and really, really enjoyed it. And for me, you captured exactly how I feel and so many other people feel about fishing. You love fishing. You care deeply about the fish and their environment as well. And I think that's really important as well. So yeah. it, it's, it's been great to have you on that part of the journey. And then, of course, when I started thinking about fly culture, you, you were somebody I had to have. And it, it was really great to to have you in the very first issue of it as well. Yeah, well, thank you, Peter. And I mean, I found Eat Sleep Fish and instantly identified with it in terms of the quality of the graphics, the uh, the content that you chose. And I think you've taken that even further with fly culture. You know, it really speaks to me in terms of dropping the grin and grins, um, you know, speaking to the experience, the lifestyle, um, stepping away from the tackle junkie side of things. Um, and I, I guess you probably found that on my blog as well. So yeah, kindred spirits, I suppose you could say. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to, to fishing with you as well. As I said, it's a real shame. I think the river's going to be too big for us to find a tour trout, but I'll do my very 
utmost to see if we can find you a tour salmon, which would yeah. be pretty cool, wouldn't well, it? Well, that would be very cool, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the blog, you know, how long had you been writing that? Um, Pete, I'm trying to remember. I think I started it in December 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere about there, late 2012. Yeah. Right. So that must tie in-ish with, I'm trying to think, six, seven, eight years ago. With, yeah, similar sort of time when I started Eat, Sleep, Fish and, okay. and, and yeah. went from then. So, um, And you've enjoyed doing it? And yeah, I've really enjoyed it. It's been an outlet for, you know, one has these stories in your head, um, I've, I've been writing for a while, but a lot of it in stuff that's buried in a file. And um, my son actually got me into it. You know, he, he looked at some stuff. I've got this fishing journal that I've kept a record of every day I've ever fished since 1983, I think it is. Wow. And not just the catches, you know, who I fished with, how the weather was. And uh, and then I was writing some stories and putting them and in, interleafing them. And my son was looking at this. He said, Dad, what you've got here is a blog, but no one can see it. And he, he actually pushed me to, to get started. And, and it's been a nice outlet instead of having that buried in a file, you know. Yeah. You get my utmost respect for doing a journal of your fishing. I've tried really, really hard. And I know um, Paul Proctor, who we had on, has detailed analysis of everything. And I've tried. Yeah. Part of me, I think wants to be able to look back when I'm too old and decrepit to go onto the river yeah. to look back. But part of me wants to try and hope that I can hold on to those memories. And, and yeah. very often I can't remember, I'm very fortunate that I meet so many wonderful people in fishing that I can't always remember their names, but I can remember where they fished, yes. where I fished with them, where they yeah. caught fish. The fishing sticks, doesn't it? It, it does, your it market. really yeah. does. And I've got this now get out clause that when I meet somebody and they go, hey, Pete, how's it going? And I can't always remember their name, but I say to them now, oh, I don't recognize you without waders on. So <laughs> <laughs> that's that's yeah. the way I, I, I tend to get out of it. But so what did you do when you started the, the blog? Did you transcribe some of your reports? So you just started from the very um, beginning? or No, how I, did, did that go? I did exactly that. That. I, I had some stuff that was on the PC and I thought, well, let's start with some media material. So I forget how many, but there were probably five to ten posts that I uploaded, you know, right from the from the start and then got going regularly thereafter. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great read. Do you come from a writing background? Or? Um, it's just something I've enjoyed and I, I never labeled myself as a writer, I guess, in, until more recently. Um, but I've always written little bits and pieces for the local fishing club magazine or you know if I did a business trip I would feel compelled to journal that and send it to my family or that type of thing so yeah, it's just something that comes naturally to me I suppose. And so your next step was to um, bring your book Stippled Beauties which yeah. is a fascinating book about what fishing again where we click so well I think about fishing what it means to you um, where you fished, what you've done, there's advice in there. It doesn't matter if you, I, I hope one day I will fish those streams, but it doesn't matter because if you love fishing, you would enjoy the read. And there's, it's a mixture of everything really, isn't it? Yeah. Pete, um, yeah, for me, my fishing experiences are, are you know, there's really so much more than the fish to me, you know, and I've got a lot of guys who, who are, are great friends of mine who are very fish focused and that's fine. But I, if I go and fish a river, I need to know which way is north. I need, I'm interested to know about history, you know, who owns this place. Um, you know, you were talking this morning downstairs over breakfast about the fact that there used to be grayling and this one was caught. That, that stuff really mm -hmm. drives me. So I'm a maps and history guy. Um, 
and the environment I'm in, you know, what's indigenous, what isn't, what's the state of the river. And so I try to bring that into the book, you know, uh, the, the weather patterns, you know, the, the broader experience of the whole thing rather than just technique of fish. And a lot of that translates to other rivers as well, really, doesn't it? It's people can gain yeah. information and, and your knowledge and skill from that as well. And uh, it was just a really, I was looking through it again the other day, I read it and then had another look through it the other day knowing that we were meeting and it's just beautifully put together and it's not sort of a, a hardback but it's one of those ones you can sort of pick something up pick yeah. it up have a look through and then put it down again but yeah. was the process a, a long and difficult one to come to and how did you come to the the idea that you wanted to actually bring a book as well um yeah at some point well look to be honest when i started the blog i had in mind writing a book and i thought well you're not going to sell a book to anyone unless someone knows who you are and that's something I'm not, doesn't come to me naturally. I'm not uh, someone who likes to, to punt myself. But I saw a need to do a little bit of that. Otherwise, it was, was going to sit on my shelf and my shelf only. Um, yeah, and I, I, some of the blog posts I was happy with, and I thought, you know, it'd be nice to catalog these into a book. It was actually quite difficult because I had a number of pieces I wanted to put in the book, but they didn't flow well. So I kind of wrote the thing in a very itty-bitty way, some of it backwards, you know, I, put a whole lot together and said, no, it's missing a link, and I had, then I had to write the link. So it was, it was quite a messy process. I suppose it, it probably always is when one writes a book, but it, it wasn't like I started a story at the beginning and wrote through to the end. I cobbled it together. Uh, a good mate of mine read it a couple of times and said, Andrew, you jumped from this subject to that, and there's no link, and then I went away and wrote that. You know, so that's kind of how it happened. It took me about two and a half years, two I think. Yeah. Well. And was there an inspiration for that? Was it more the blog or was there other writing that you thought, actually, that's really inspired me to want to, to do this? Um, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed so many other books. Look, I collect fly fishing books. I've got a, a lovely collection of books and, and the books that I enjoy are the story books. Yeah. I've got a whole lot of technical books. I use those to put myself to sleep. <laughs> but the story books, the gear arcs, and, and of course in South Africa we've got Tom Sutcliffe, who you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard of, yes. a wonderful writer. And, and I guess Tom's an inspiration in that he's done that thing where he writes a number of stories. He, he does a journaling or a sort of essayist type book. But there are a number of others as well. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, we've got a story to tell here in the KZN Midlands, and there's very few books, or very few recent books. There's some good old stuff from back in the 50s and the 60s, but there's very little recent stuff, and it felt to me there was a gap there, and I perhaps had a part to play. Is there a long, rich history of, of literature out of South Africa? And it's, it's, you know, always I've known about it, but not yeah. so much that you can get, you know, you were the first person, really, of a book, I'm, I'm aware of, Tom Sutcliffe, and I'm sure I've read some of his stuff somewhere along the line, but yeah. but being able to be aware of that sort of stuff, yeah. is, is there a long history of there, There's, well, not in not in UK terms, you know, yeah. our, our, and we, we're talking trout fishing here, our trout have been around for about 128 years, I think it is, and, and the literature came thereafter, so a short history. Um, there's actually a, a book out, Fishing in the Margins, um, which is a catalogue of the South African fly fishing books. Um, and I have actively gone out and sought to, to acquire a copy of each of the ones. Some of the ones in, in Fishing the Margins are, are non-trout and non-fly fishing. So I've sort of wheedled my way through. And I, I think I counted them once. There are about 74 
books. So oh, wow. it's a small collection, not a huge collection. Yeah. And I think I own 71 or 72 oh, wow. of those. And I, I make it my mission to find those last two or three. And are they difficult to find? Or you yeah. find, yeah. I've got the easy ones, obviously, and the, and the more difficult ones come at the end. So, yeah, I, I perhaps haven't pursued it as actively as I could, but I'm getting there. Yeah. Brilliant. And yeah. do you find those on eBay or is it in shops? No, or is it's, it's yeah. you... you yeah, they, they're just not popular out there and it's difficult to find them. And typically you speak to a bookshop owner and he promises to get back to you, but actually you just go to secondhand bookshops and you mm. go look in the piles underneath the tables. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's where you find most. They're occasionally on the internet, someone will put them up, but generally those are the more common ones that everyone's got anyway. And so does that mean, is there a big fly fishing culture in South Africa or is it sort of coastal fishing? Is it, what does it tend yeah, to it's, it's tend interesting to that you ask that. I think our, our numbers of fly fishermen is very low. And if you ask me for a number, I would really struggle. But mm. the, the fly fishing fraternity that is on social media, um, who perhaps writes some articles for the magazines, who one hears about, I could almost sit here and write you a list. Hmm. It's small. It's really hmm. small. Having said that, a number of people have said to me, visitors from, from around the world who I have met, not a lot of them, but they've said to me, you've, got, you've really got something going here. You know, you've got guys who build fantastic bamboo fly rods. You've got guys who make nets. You've got writers. You've got world-class fly tires. So I think we've got quite a strong fly fishing ethos mm. uh, in South Africa. Yeah, um, rock and surf is big in South Africa. We've got a long coastline. And that's kind of a separate fraternity mm. altogether, you know. Um, but yeah, quite a close-knit fly fishing uh, circle. And I think, yeah, let me say it, quite up there in terms of their knowledge, their awareness of what's going around the world, what the latest trends are, where the venues are, how we compare to other countries. We, we're quite engaged with that, I think. Where do you think the influences come from? I guess they started off probably from the UK, but is yeah. there an American feel? Is there yeah. Canadian? Is there Australian? Is yeah. there where does, where does it it's come from? Is it everything? definitely starts with the UK. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at my own personal experience, my grandfather fished, and, mm. and he fished with tackle that was straight out of the UK. It was Hardy's and Lloyd's, mm. and, and that's where it started. And with all the old English fly patterns, you know, the Conmara Black and, the, yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, and I think the American influence has definitely grown. I guess it's because of TV in particular. We've got a big, you know, more of an American influence in our TV. Um, so it's it's a balance, um, but yeah, British in the past, and you can tell the old timers like me because we still weigh our fish in pounds and measure them yeah. in inches, and the other guys are in centimeters and kgs, which I don't understand at all, by the way. Yeah. I'm so pleased you said that because <laughs> I'm exactly that. I was on the cusp, I think, at school where they were flirting with the idea of metric, but yeah. we taught an imperial, and it's wonderful that fishing's still in. Yeah, it's weird. Imperial. I mean, I have no a bag idea of sugar, I measure yeah. in kgs. If you told me yeah. how many pounds it was, I'd be lost. But a fish, yeah. I, I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah, yeah. it has to yeah. be pounds. And or inches long. Yeah, inches yeah. and pounds. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And so coming back to your book, you must have been thrilled because um, I heard it sold out. Yeah, well, I did a limited uh, print. You know, I, with these things, you, you either go to a publisher, and if they believe in you. Um, They'll, they'll print, but you've got to pay for the print and you've got to do a minimum of whatever it is, a number of thousand copies, and you've got to go and bond your house to do that. Mm. And I thought, let me take the lower risk uh, route. So I didn't do a lot. I think there were 400 in all, if I'm not mistaken. So a very low number. So aim low and, and, and achieve success, you know. <laughs> but you must be very proud of that. That's... Well, yeah, it was a, it was a feel-good uh, yeah. project. Yeah. And, and uh, I didn't print any more. I've, I've got down to the end and I thought, well, let's, let's, let's quit while I'm up, you know. <laughs> do you think you've got another one in you? Um... It, it's halfway out, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I've been writing it. I've, I've been through a dry patch, though, for quite a long, 
quite a long while, but I've got a half-written book on the PC, and um, yeah, I just need a prod and a prompt to get back to it and finish it off, yeah. But thrilling to hear that, and it, it's wonderful to hear. Did most of them go to the South Africa, or I guess yeah. probably? Yeah, yeah. There, yeah. there were a couple of people um, who I sent them to, you know, old school friends or what have you, looked mm. me up, and so a couple went to the States and New Zealand and Australia and the UK, but, but the bulk of them were in South Africa. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, many congratulations yeah. on that. Thank That's you. a great achievement. Um, you alluded to your grandfather fishing, and I think we probably should come back to, you know, fishing. Has it always been a part of your life? Yeah, pr- pretty much, hey, Peter. Interesting how I came into fly fishing. My dad didn't really fish. My grandfather did, but he died, wow, way back in 74. I was born 67, so I was, I was a little kid then. So I didn't get the influence from him. But in the farmhouse, there was his old bamboo fly rod hanging in the, in the passage with a creel hanging from the same hook. So it was always kind of there. Um, and I, I actually, this is a weird story, but I came to fly fishing through, I was at boarding school, and I came to fly fishing through fly tying, strangely enough. And I, it's, it's a crystal clear moment. Uh, I think it's actually in my book. Um, I was in the school library, and there was the vineyards uh, book that used to come inside the fly tying kit on how to tie a fly. I was probably a library monitor or something on duty. I picked this thing up and read it, and I thought, this is great. And I went and found who owned the book, and he had a fly tying kit, and he showed me how to tie flies, and it went from there. And then an old Hardy's catalogue, which I still own, about a 19, late 20s, early 30s catalogue in the bookshelf at home that I absorbed and, and got into it. And then I have a, a cousin who I fish with a lot. Uh, he's mentioned in the book, PD. And um, his, his dad was into fishing, so he was a big influence as well. Um, and he started a couple of years before me and has always been as fishing mad as I am. So, so he helped along the way. But yeah, since junior school days. Fantastic. Interesting you mentioned Hardy a few times there. Have you seen the film Lost World of Mr. Hardy? I haven't actually. You should, no, if I you can it, yeah. find it somewhere, it's a fabulous yeah. watch. Really interesting. And where you'd see you know, a company that would you were fishing for Monsieur somewhere or other and they'd build you a rod and they, they show the factory for, floor of loads of people tying flies at vices yeah. and everything. It's just fabulous to to yeah. see what a, a, a business that, that was and yeah. I suppose to a degree still is, but, but how different it was back then Agreed, and what yeah. a big part of it. So you found fly tying, I guess you started tying some flies yeah. and then I guess you needed to learn to cast and... Yeah, and I... I don't even know, you know, memory fails me. I don't even know how I got into it. Yeah, I guess I just, you know, there were fly rods hanging in the passage. I, I picked up a fly rod, uh, probably some help from my uncle, I forget. In quite early days, I remember going to one of the fishing clinics. You know, we, we've had these clinics now and then over the years uh, and got some tips there and, and yeah, just kind of self-taught and learnt along the way. Yeah. So where were you first fishing? Was it on a pond or a reservoir or a, yeah, on the river so straight away? It, it's an interesting one that you'll find that in our area, the fly fishing was all in, in, in rivers because there were no, there were no natural lakes or very, very few natural lakes. And when I came into fly fishing, there had just been a great number of, of what you might call ponds, and in South Africa we call them dams. dams yeah. Yeah. A number of farm dams built. And back then, what a lot of people don't know is that the government was subsidizing those so farmers could build a dam at a relatively low cost just because it beautified their property. And of course, they stuck trout in them. And, and the whole of South Africa, particularly KZN province, went dam mad, if I can call it that. You know, They were suddenly catching fish 
that were going three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right up to 10 pounds, and their, their eyes were the size of saucers, and they forgot about the rivers. Mm. And that's where I started. So we fished dams to start with, um, and the rivers were in a side. But if I look back in my, in my um, journal, there were definitely river fishing expeditions mm. from, from way back, but dams predominated, and now the rivers are back in favor, and it's been quite a substantial swing back to the stream fishing. I know my friend um, Duncan Rayner, who I'm sure will listen to this at some stage, he's from Zimbabwe and exactly dams I knew yeah. exactly and his mother used to take him and he tells lovely stories of fishing those dams for fish and that's yeah. how he got into it and, and went from there. And I think the still water is historically as well has always been a place where even here that we've started our fishing yes. and then not graduated because they have an important part in, in fishing but people discover moving water and for me the moment I discovered moving yeah. water that was it was hard to get me away from that yeah. so you were fishing your streams and and um, finding trout in those I guess yeah mm. and it's interesting now that I think of it I remember as a school kid um, PD and I we, we were at school together at high school and we we decided to subscribe to some foreign magazines and if I remember correctly I subscribed to Rod and Reel and paid 60% he got to read them I got to keep them yeah. afterwards <laughs> and he did the same with trout fishermen yeah which was the reservoir fishing magazine. Yeah. So all these great big flies that looked like lures, but there was a lot of influence from yes. both of those. Quite a nice balance, one from the States, yeah. one, from, one from the UK. Fantastic. That's really, really cool. And so local river, was that near... I get the impression you have to travel a fair bit to um, your home yeah. streams, Look, it were. depending on where you live. Uh, yeah. my, my hometown is, is Peter Maritzburg. I live on a sort of uh, dormitory town just to the north of Peter Maritzburg called Hilton. And um, most of my fishing is day trips, and you jump in a car and you can be on water for, from about, to be realistic, 45 minutes to two hours drive, depending on mm. which, which stream or, or dam you're going to fish. So yeah, a bit of traveling, and I, I think there was a limiting factor as a kid before, you mm. know, I had to wait for someone to drop me off. Um, but yeah, day trips, I don't know how that compares to here. You're right on the river here, so you probably... I, where I live, you may say it's a lucky coincidence. I live between Dartmoor and Exmoor, where all the streams are. But yeah. My wife will tell you that I have maps out looking away, so we're, yeah. we're nicely... That's the lovely thing, and we talked on one of the other podcasts, I think, about the streams that... I've just got streams everywhere, everywhere. which is... And, and that's why I live in Devon. Or, or yeah. you're probably on yeah, stream, I'm six yeah. minutes from the up sections yeah. of the tour. Where we're going is another 10 minutes down the road, and, yeah. and you've got Dartmoor 40 minutes up the road. Yeah. So there's a real mixture of fishing um, in the area, so it was really lucky. So when you were starting, was there somebody you fished with? Was it a buddy from school? Was it a family member, or was taking yeah. you to the fishing? Did you have anyone who had a big was, influence? It was probably PD. Uh, yeah. um, so he, his dad was into fishing. He, his dad took both of us. Um, he started before I did, um, and they were fishing mad. And so they'd come visit on the farm, you know, and of course that, that was a big influence and him and I fished together a lot and various other people but he, he's the guy I've got the longest history of and we still fish together which is Fantastic. great yeah. Lovely and it's learning about fishing and we've had some um, articles yours and I know Brett wrote a piece about fishing over in South Africa as well seems and my friend Ray as well mentioned it in one of the articles as well seems as though it should be on my radar to fish it's easy relatively easy to get to yeah. and the time difference and everything yeah. else it's my sort of fishing as well you know yeah. pocket water we'll talk about that but it's been really interesting and doing a little bit of research before we met up and 
we were talking about it while we were having breakfast this morning and The Trout's Tale by Chris Newton is a fascinating book if anyone has read it. Um, I hope they'll agree with me and if they haven't I would really recommend it. And it talks about the distribution of trout around the then British Empire and it talks about the length and, and work and hard work that went into setting up hatcheries to introduce fish to those areas. Um, particularly it highlights Tasmania and New Zealand. Um, but I still smile when I look at the first trout that they introduced into Africa, and I think it was Kenya, and a guy called Ewert Grogan, and he just emptied pretty much a bucket of over, trout over, yeah. into the river, and they survived. South Africa, it seems as though it wasn't quite as easy. Um, the over kept dying. But the fish um, that first took were on the Bushmans and the um, Umgeni um, in Natal, which are your home yeah, rivers. So it's yeah. kind of interesting it is, yeah. reading that. You, you know a little bit more about that. Yeah. I know it took some getting them, the fish to take into those rivers, it did, didn't it? Yeah. So um, a friend of mine, Jake Allison, wrote a, a little pamphlet, almost not even published, called Greenheart to Graphite. Oh, and that gives the full history. It's probably the most comprehensive history. He pulled all the, all the information together. And it's a tiny little pamphlet. Um, that tells the whole story of them bringing trout. And what they got wrong is that they they had the they hadn't worked out the altitude thing in, in South Africa because of our warm climate. You've got to be above, and I'm going to use meters here, 1,200 meters above sea level. No idea what that means. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you look at it, if I'm not mistaken, the Bushmans ones actually failed. They got it right on the Moy and the Mgeni, but on the Bushmans they stocked them too low down. And in fact, where you look at the positioning of their hatchery was in the Car Kloof which is marginal. And they later moved it to Balgan, which was a little bit better. And in fact, they would have had a rip-roaring success if they'd just gone further up the valley to the Camberg or somewhere. Uh, it was just really about temperature. Um, but yeah, they worked hard at it. They had a couple of failings, um, but persistent guys, and, and they got it going. And so the fishing in South Africa, I'd love to learn a little bit more about it as well. I assume the obviously the fish, uh, the, the rivers are fed by... Um, mountains. Yeah. Would that be rain snow fed. melt? So will you get runoff and... Yeah, rain fed. So we have this unusual thing. We have these very dry winters. And if they were wet, we would probably get a lot of snow because the temperature's there. But we have these dry, dry winters. Now, you talk about rain earlier, and we've just come out of winter and a particularly dry winter. I mean, I'm talking five months of not a single drop of rain. Wow. And that's, that's pretty normal. Um, so we have these hot, steamy summers, lots of rain in the mountains and uh, rain-fed rivers. And they get awfully low this time of the year. So our season opened now on the 1st of September. Yours about to close. And our rivers are devilishly thin, very difficult. The fish are skittish. They are low and clear. Um, and always around about this time of the year, and I write about this in the book, is we, we're all kind of looking at the clouds, you know, hanging on for those first, uh, first decent rains. So, yeah, stream-fed, stream and I'm talking largely about KZN here. The Cape is different. They have a Mediterranean climate, and they all have all their rainfall in the winter, which is the pole opposite, which is, yeah. which is quite unusual. Um, if you look on my blog, there's a little map on the right-hand ribbon with little blue areas. Now, I shaded those by hand, but they, they're not all that inaccurate as to where you get trout in South Africa. And if you look at it, they are little slithers. They are very contained, uh, and they're very limited because of temperature. Mm. So they're in the cool mountainous areas. Um, Western Cape has this, this cold, wet winters. They, they have amazingly hot summers, but they have a good evaporative effect because their air is dry in summer, which cools the water. They have these fissures that fill with water in the mountains and, and bleed out slowly during the, during the summer. 
And, and I guess we have the same. We have these cool highlands, great big sponge, which uh, is important to conserve for us guys for, for a million reasons, but for fly fishers as well. And um, yeah, we, we survived through the winter on last summer's rain. So which of those rivers that you actually mentioned would be your home river? Would it be the Mui? Or? It, it would be the Mgani without Mgani. doubt. And, right. and that I've got a really sort of long history with the Mgani in that my great-grandfather's buried on a farm up there. My grandfather owned that farm. My dad was born there. I grew up on a farm further down the valley, but also with the Mgani River frontage. It was just outside of the trout area. Um, it's closest to me at home. But, yeah, the, the other wonderful rivers, the Moy, absolutely wonderful, the Bushmans, um, the Luteni, the Nzinga, the Umkumas. So you've uh, got a few as well. We've got quite a few, yeah. 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 And your home one, how would you describe it to us? Is it sort of um, steeply falling? Is there pocket water? How wide is it? Yeah. How, okay, so the Mgani, um, it... it gets to the size where you can start flicking a fly into it and 17 k's later it goes over a waterfall into a, a gorge that's too warm for trout so hmm. 17 kilometers of trout river it's pretty short um in its first three or four kilometers it's an upland stream uh, pocket water quite steeply cascading uh, pretty water and then it quite quickly turns into meandering meadow water and it's not a spring creek, but it's a process. The closest thing you'll find in South Africa is spring creek. Lovely. Yeah, and can you target fish there? You can see them. You can, but it, it's the 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 color of the bed, the fact that they're browns, they are they are difficult to spot. Mm. One aims to spot them, but we fish blind most of the time. Right. The, then the other rivers um, are faster and quicker. The Latini in particular, it's kind of uh, staircase water a lot of it. Um, the upper Bushmans, the Moyle, the same, a lot more of that faster mm. water. Mm. Uh, both of them then go into more pastoral water lower down, but they, they are less... Uh, they are less of that sort of meadow water than the Mgani is. And what would that be? Would that be rainbows and browns? or? Okay, browns. So here's the fascinating thing. The, if you look at a map of South Africa, there's a, there's a protrusion of the, of the Drakensberg of Lesotho that comes out to its furthest point to the east. And if you put your finger or your pencil on the end of that point, the mountain you're on is Giant's Castle. And a whole number of those rivers uh, have their source on the Giant's Castle. They either flow to the, the south or the north, but they're on that that spur of land that sticks out. And all of those rivers are brown trout rivers. And to the north and to the south are rainbow rivers. And in both cases, they've stocked the one species in the, in the other's river, and for whatever reason, they don't survive. They, right. they peter out, right. and no one knows why. Wow, that's we, we really don't know why. Yeah. But, but browns are less common in South Africa. Right. And where I sit, my three closest, four closest rivers are, are all brown trout rivers, which is great. It's, for us, it's something slightly unusual. And is it like the US where the browns are slightly more revered because of them being a little bit more tricky to catch yeah. than rainbows say? Yeah, they are. Well, in my mind, they are. And mm. I like yeah. <laughs> other people's as well. I think um, there are fewer of them. If you go down to the Western Cape, it's just about only rainbows. Um, northeastern cape as well which is an area we go and fish a bit closer to home and up in the transvaal mainly rainbows so mm. the browns are, are a novelty um yeah and i think it's more that than anything else and do you have local patterns that have developed over time or oh, yes. are things transposable yeah no they have i mean in the in the early days i go back to my grandfather fishing with an invicta and a and a 
penal and yeah. you know, these kind of things. But we've we've migrated to South African patterns in a big way. Yeah, we've mm. got a whole host of patterns. Yeah. You know, uh, look, there's so many out there nowadays, aren't there? You, yeah. you, you start to battle for names, kind yeah. of thing. You know, and everyone's got their own pattern, and they've all named it after themselves. Yeah, <laughs> modestly. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, just to speak of some very South African concepts, the one uh, which really has taken hold is this halo hackle concept. Um, so you've got a dry fly with a with a, a hackle that's matched correctly for your size 16 and then you've got to start with they used to use a hackle now we've got into squirrel tail fibers that are much longer and you tie in with those very sparsely and give you that big spidery footprint helps float a delicate dry fly makes the footprint a little bit bigger um, and that's very much the halo hackle is a south african concept which um, yeah and i'll show you some in my box yeah, they're, full scene, they're great fun and terrestrials i guess must play a yeah, terrestrials are quite yeah. significant, and mm. I, but I think we feed off a lot of American patterns, a lot yeah. of the foam hoppers. Um, yeah, and then coming to the nymphs, uh, Tom Sutcliffe's got a great nymph called the Zack, which is really a very simple thing, sort of peacock, uh, one one of them is stripped and the other is not, sort of tied into a rope and, and a sort of palmered type effect. Very simple, normally quite well weighted, and, mm. and uh, but there are a whole host of patterns mm. out there, mm. yeah. And so what are you tackling the streams with? What sort of length of rod are you using? What line weight? Okay. Is it long leaders? Is it? Yeah. So obviously, again, that's going to vary depending on who you speak to. So the latest thing is the, is the tight line nymphing, the euro nymphing. Yes. I'm personally not into that in a big way. I just love that arc of a fly line and I catch fewer fish and I'm happy for it. So for me, it's, it's a, when we go up in the mountains on the smaller streams, it's a one or a two weight. I've got a little two weight that I use, a little seven foot something. Um, on the bigger rivers, the, down on the on the lower Bushmans or on a windy day, I'll be using a nine foot four weight, uh, which is probably a little bit longer and heavier than some guys would consider. But um, I've got my reasons for that. And then my bog standard's probably a three weight, yeah. uh, sort of eight foot three weight. Um, and leaders, yeah, as long as I can manage, and I'm not the greatest caster out there, so I'm probably going to a sort of twelve to eighteen foot leader, oh, right. so it's somewhere, quite, quite a long somewhere around yeah. about there. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and fishing, I think there's a whole host of us who fish dry fly whenever we can. Yeah. We, we aim to find a rising fish, we aim to spot a fish, and we aim to use a dry fly. Uh, we probably catch more fish on nymphs, yeah. if, if the truth yeah. had to be told. And will you fish like a dry dropper type Yeah, setup? definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah a hopper dropper, a hopper and an ant. Yeah, and a, yeah that's a yeah. searching pattern, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah, really, really. Or an indicator, I use indicators, yeah. probably too much, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, if it works, as I've said on previous ones, you know, you fish what's appropriate, don't you? And yeah. I'm, I'm kind of with you on the urinim thing. I really, and I, I think I may have mentioned this before, I really enjoy it. Mm. Um, summertime here, or trout season here, I don't use it at all. Mm. I've stopped using it. Because um, I'm getting, in my old age, more about the fish. It's not about the catching. Yeah. Give the fish a chance as well. And, and my yeah. friend said to me, you know, we do this because it's hard. Yeah. And so I like to try and give the fish a chance if there's been big water and I have actually done it in the sim- summer I was fishing my friend Gerald on the tamer and we'd had some water and the grayling season had just started and I just wanted to try and catch a grayling and yeah. that would have been the best way to do and, it and with grayling I, I'm imagining that urine and things are a good way of catching them isn't it it's a really good one yeah. you know if you look at the, the underslung mouth however yeah. October time um, you know they'll be rising okay. um, yeah. and throughout the summer obviously as well but they'll they'll be rising as well so you catch them on dry. But I think the, the urinum thing is you know it's a little bit like what motor racing is to 
to you, the car you and I drive. There, mm. there are a couple of things in there that came from motor racing, mm. you know. And I think it's it certainly taught me to go to finer leaders uh, because they they're less inclined to swing up in the current. Um, slightly heavier flyers yeah. as long as I can still have that arcing fly line um, you know so I won't go to a, a sort of 4 mil bead or even a 3.5 yeah. mil bead I kind of stop at it stop at a 2 or 2.5 mil bead if I'm using it and that's to be honest where your nymphing comes in because it is easier to lob those 4, four mil nymphs yeah, rather a, than a, a foot, yeah, yeah with a you know a 3 weight rod it becomes a little yeah. bit pro- problematic and then you can suddenly make that set up um, eight mil of two fours, or even more for grading yeah. time, if you want three flies as well. So you can plumb those depths. But I'm I'm kind of with you in that. That you know I want to make a nice cast, and that's part of why I love fly fishing so much. Is that the casting aspect of it is to me yeah. personally really pleasing, and yeah. it's a nice one. And I feel that about your double-handed spay casting. It's something I've never done before, but I can watch that, and it just grabs me. You know? I can feel that pull of the line, and you know? I can see the. The synchronization is yes. just just wonderful, and I think you know that kind of talks to us a lot, doesn't it? That, you know, putting out a pleasing cast, and if the fish doesn't take any notice of the offering, there's still a pleasure in that, isn't there? I think the first issue of Fly Culture, my wife Emma wrote a piece about her salmon fishing and her introduction to it. We were down on the river yesterday, yeah. actually, and she was trying at the time to string a number of good spay casts together. Yeah, and that was. A pleasing part of it to, just to get a doing that five or six yeah. good ones yeah and then she's become a she won't admit it she's far too modest to say but <laughs> she's become a very fine spaycaster and a good salmon angler as well and I, I guess to a degree they probably do go hand in hand although salmon are a weird weird fish but with trout you as you well know you know you've got a rising fish and it's You've got to cover it, and you've got to cover it well. You don't want to spook yeah. it. And that sort of part of it is really interesting to me. And I've found more so as well, and where I've been fishing a lot this year, that I sit and spend a little bit more time watching and waiting for that rising fish, yeah. and I'll wait a Instead of just jumping in with a nymph. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. even it was magnified even more fishing with... Um, Paul Proctor, we'd not fished together for a little while, and he was down on the river with me, and, and watching his patience is unbelievable he would yeah. wait hours yeah. for a fish and the one he caught he caught for our river a, a really nice fish that was just i think it was two two pound twelve something like that yeah. which for the west country here now, is a peter really I, I keyed into that because you'd caught a great fish just before that hadn't yes. you? a couple of weeks i saw yes. that photo and i appreciated that because i've been watching your rivers and i can see that you've got similar size trout to us you're sort of 10 to 12 inches a whole lot of those and that was what, what size was that fish well we weighed it because emma was salmon fishing at the time and i said yeah. i don't really feel it i'm just going to pull a streamer and see and the, the river had sort of had done its clearing down but i thought perhaps some fish are coming yeah. on the feed there wasn't anything rising and my preference is to fish, like I say, I'll fish what's appropriate, but my preference would be for rising fish and yeah. to target those. There weren't any rising. I said to her, I'm just going to go upstream with you a little bit and pull a streamer. Mm. And so she had the salmon net, so we actually weighed it, and I, I mentioned it, I think, on the podcast, yeah. but we weighed it was just under four and a quarter pounds, Absolutely which wonderful. is And then you said to Paul on the podcast, you, you spoke about it briefly, and you kind of said that probably won't happen again. And then, am I right? Did I pick up on that? Did you guys go and get that? He got it. Well, he caught that one, yeah, absolutely. That same day after you'd finished your So podcast. that was, yeah, absolutely. I, I and he the is case. the master yeah. of probably in the UK is one of the small group of people who can consistently do that. Yeah. But they... You know, he works, it's that patience. Yeah. He will wait 
for that. And I think he says as well, sometimes he'll walk past fish and then kick himself afterwards. But yeah. he's looking for looking. that one I've fish. I've got a mate, Anton, who, who I remember one day recently on the Mgani where we got down there. I looked at the river for a bit, thought about it, thought where to cast, waited for a rising fish and started fishing. And he's a smoker. And I turned around and there he was puffing away. He hadn't taken his fly out of his keeper. Well, I'd finished fishing the first pool. He still hadn't taken his fly out of the keeper. And I reeled in and I was about to walk past and he beckoned to me. He said, Andrew, come over here. So I crept up next to him and had a look. He said, there's a trout there and there's another one over there. Mm. And yeah, sometimes we've just got to slow down, haven't we? It is. And it's really good to do. And I think it makes you look at how the fish are reacting. It, mm. it makes that fly pattern more well thought out if you're yeah. watching the rise forms if you're watching you know we talked on the pool, the one I did with Paul I think that I was guiding out the back here and every time the wind blew the fish rose and it took me a couple of yeah, to, to realise it was terrestrials and, yeah. and to put on a beetle and we caught the fish and, and things like that and that patience does pay dividends and I think as we get older I'm similar age as you that um as you get older, you're a lot more patient yeah. about your fishing. And, you know, I know 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I was fishing. I'd run to the river and we'd literally do, and I think Girak mentions it in one of his books, that you do that rid run, trying to get into your waders while you're running to the river. <laughs> and my friend Ray, the dude, you know, I remember we were fishing somewhere. We'd been on a tour of fishing a bunch of rivers and we were sitting there and I said, dude, I'm... I'm so knackered. We've <laughs> yeah. got to eat. Yeah. We wouldn't eat. We wouldn't fish. We, we fished together in New Zealand for two weeks. And I was ill for two weeks afterwards because yeah. we didn't Trying to recover. eat anything. Yeah. yeah, it was. And so now spending a little bit more time, the fish aren't going to go anywhere. You yeah. can be a little bit more patient. And I don't fish hard all day now. Yeah. I find I don't need to. That's enough. You know, yeah. it might be two hours, four hours, whatever it is. Sometimes you've got the bit between your teeth, haven't yeah. you? But things do change. I used to try and look at the piece of river I was going to fish and say, right, it's, you know, a mile or two and a half kilometres or whatever it is, and, and try and aim to cover that in a day. Mm. And, and that just caused me to fish too fast, you know. Yeah. 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 And so is it long hikes into the river? Do you have to travel a fair way or is it is um, it laid out? Would you have fishing near the road that you can go to and generally speaking a bit of a hike and I mm. think that's look people are naturally quite lazy and if they, if they if they are a tourist and a visitor and they've got family with them if they can park next to their piece of water they're going to fish and fish within sight of the car or just around the corner they're more inclined to do it our rivers generally do take a bit of hiking mm. and it's part of what a lot of us love but I think it's part of what keeps some people out of the river they can't drive you don't have roads running down the rivers where you can keep peeking out of the car window to see what the conditions are like. You, you've got to drive in, park and walk. Mm. Um, and that perhaps what keeps the fishing pressure low. And our fishing pressure is very low. On, on rivers, it's particularly mm. low. Mm. I was telling my hosts this morning at the B&B I was staying at that in, hell, I don't know, I've been fishing for, you know, going on 40 years. I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I've bumped into someone else fly fishing on the river. Really? Yeah, I mean, we can, we can go and fish you can go and cover if, if you wanted to go that fast you could five up, do 5k's in a day you definitely won't see anyone else that's extraordinary what about fish per mile do you have any sense of how many no, you're I having don't. no I really don't um, you know I know the Yanks are very keyed into that aren't yes, they they, I know they, they sort of measure the quality of a stream by its fish count and, mm. I, and I think well how do you count them I guess yeah. <laughs> I guess they got some way of counting them but um, I really don't know but I can tell you that for example the the Moy has a high population of fish. It mm. probably has too many fish. Mm. And um, if you're not catching them, it's, it's not because they're not fish there. It's because they're just 
being browns, you know, browns mm. can be belligerent things, can't they? They yeah. close their mouths. Um, but on the Mgani, particularly after a couple of drought years, your fish numbers are lower. Um, so, and the Luteni, the Luteni's fish numbers are down, and so is the, the Umkumas. Uh, whereas the Moy and the Bushmans have high populations. So I can tell you, tell you that anecdotally, if I can mm. put it that way. Yeah, I, it's really interesting that the fish per mile, I wouldn't know the tour. My guess would be, well, I don't know because I've never lectured fish, so I don't know. I'm sure smart people can tell, tell us the answer to that. But you look at the Yellowstone, for example, and that's 6,000 per mile. That sounds high, yeah. Which is big. No, and I think that's why there you can park your car and probably stay in one spot yeah, and catch one, a bunch of fish. And yeah. I think the green in Utah is about 10,000. It's ex- amazing I mean, it's, numbers It's, it's got to be significant how, what size they are as well. Yeah. Because the, maybe the Moy's got the same number, but they're all eight inches in yes. a normal year. Yeah, you know? we could yeah. be exactly yeah. the same. I wouldn't know. It might be a 1,000 per mile. I yeah. honestly haven't the foggiest idea. I know that we get runs of sea trout, so that must mean there isn't a, enough food or yeah. the environment or whatever it is. They, they move out to the sea for some yeah, grub. Exactly, and yeah. then come come back in, spawn again. So I, I, I don't know. It would be fascinating to perhaps try and learn a little bit more about that. I know in the piece you've written for Fly Culture that's just in the um, issue that we brought out, the autumn issue, you talk about your home stream and the conservation work that you have done on there, which was really, really interesting. Conservation is really, really important to you, isn't it? It is. It's, it's become very close to my heart. I, th- I think it's always been there. Um, I mentioned earlier that I grew up on a farm, um, and that parental influence is big. You know, my dad always hated a wattle tree. Now, a wattle tree, Acacia mernsii, it's an Australian thing, which is, which is brought into South Africa to give some shade because we just really don't have a lot of trees. Not, not in the upland areas, we're a grassland area. And those things have invaded the KZN Midlands, the Eastern Transvaal high, Highlands as well. Uh, they sap, I don't know, a multiple, call it four times as much water as indigenous trees do, and they spread like crazy. A whole lot of problems with them. They, they shade out the river, they have an allelopathic effect, which means that other species are not able to germinate within their root zone. Um, they're very high in tannins, and their, their leaf matter is not digestible to all the biota. So these things cause an absolute desert. Now, I mentioned my dad because for his whole farming life, and he's an old man now, his whole farming life, his mission was to get rid of the wattle trees off Corrieland Farm. And he, he did that. Every year, he would take out another block and push back and put in a pasture or try and get some grass in there. And he, and he achieved it. And that farm is, is a picture book beautiful farm now. And so that's always been in me. And then, of course, with the fishing, it, it became this concern about the rivers. And that's very close to my heart. And this wattle infestation is very real. It's been there for a long time. And um, if left unchecked, it gets completely out of control. So on the Mgani, there were some sections that were really bad. And, and you'd go and fish there. And never mind that you caught your fly in a tree. That's not what it's about. But it was a desert there. The fish numbers were low. The fish size was low. So... You know, I've, I started talking to people about this in the, oh, I don't know, probably the early 90s, and it's been, it's been there in the back of my head. And I guess you get to a stage in life where you've got a bit of time, you've got the resources, you've raised your kids or whatever it is, where you can now go and pursue a dream or whatever it is. And, and that became a reality for me with this BRU project that we started. Coincidentally, also around about 2012, 2013, when I published the book. Um, and... Yeah, look, it's not a huge project. We've probably cleared, I don't know, six, seven, eight kilometres of uh, of the Mgani River, but it, it's uh, 
it's been very satisfying. It really has. And has that brought more people in? It's interesting you talk about um, as you get to a certain age and stuff like that as well. Do you think that is you want to leave, not that we're talking about mortality or anything like that, but you want to have a river that people, you can have people when you were younger, yeah. sort of, you know, younger people coming through and fishing that. Are you getting younger people yeah, fishing? Yeah, and I, I don't know why, but it gives me immense satisfaction when someone goes and fishes one of those clear beats on them going and has a great day. Yeah. I, I just enjoy that, you know. Mm. Even if it's not publicised, I just really enjoy that um, we've, we've fixed something that people can go and use, and I hope that that guy's grandkids will also go and have a good fishing there. There is something satisfying yeah. about that, isn't yeah. there? And is there plans to try and do some more work as well? Yeah. Um, so all these rivers have different needs. So some of these rivers will come out of the relatively pristine Drakensberg area, the UNESCO World Heritage Site, nicely preserved. They'll cross the fence into a dairy farm or perhaps more significantly into um, a rurally uh, uh, condensed area of population, these previous tribal areas, with quite severe erosion, quite a lot of uh, wattle infestation. So there's, there's more than enough work to do. And, mm. and um, there's, a, there's a lot of overgrazing. There's a lot of American bramble, which, which is difficult stuff to get through for part of anything else, but also thins the felt, and that in turn gives rise to more erosion. So there's so much more work to do. And um, it's just a case of funding um, and willing participants, you know, and, and I, get, I think I'll push that as far as I can. Yeah. If there are guys who are still with me and there's still some money in the bank, we, we'll do yeah. what we can. Yeah. And most of those people helping you, are they fly anglers or are they people yeah. caring about... Yeah. So I've done quite a lot to try and... We have a volunteer day on the river to try and punt it to friends in the environmental community and friends in the fishing community. And we've got a blend of people, largely fly fishermen though. Those waters we've cleared belong to our local fishing club. So it's fishing club members it's coming to clear their own beat mm. yeah yeah it's like same happens here i guess yeah. as well so it's it's wonderful to hear that people are like we said at the very beginning in the introduction caring about the environment and the fish and that yeah. that seems to have changed probably in the last 10 yeah 15 and years think, with the wild trout trust and yeah else, and i think you know? guys are way ahead yeah. of us i mean it's one of the reasons i've come to the uk is to come and learn what what you guys have done here and and start that in south africa because yeah. i think we've got a lot to offer We've got a vested interest in a, in a clean, full river, you know, and there's a lot we can do to achieve yeah. that. It's interesting because I get my guess is that probably the Wild Trout Trust came about well, when it started, the Wild Trout Trust Society. I remember joining it the moment it started. But um, I guess that took a lead from Trout Unlimited. Yeah, and could well it. Yeah, from there, I, I, I would and guess. Trout Unlimited is something I follow on social media. Amazing, and be in touch with them. Yeah, they've got political strength. Oh, and they've, they've got, got numbers. They've yeah, got yeah, yeah. yeah. I, funny, I, I'm following what's going on in the driftless area. Yeah, that looks oh, amazing. Fishing, doesn't it? Oh but, man! But also the amount of money they've yeah. spent, and and it's just it's inspirational, isn't it? And that looks, it is, and, and the fishing there as well seems similar probably to what you have well, and what we have well, as well. Well, that's it. I'll tell you yeah. what, what, what first caused me to sort of go and research this area and look at it is I opened a website or a magazine or something and saw a picture and said, hell, yes. is that on the Mgani? And then discovered it was actually on the Driftless yeah. and said, okay, there are a whole lot of differences. They get a lot of snow in winter and all the rest. But aside from that, it just looked so similar. Yes. Then I see they, they've got problems with silt and they're working on their river. And it just clicked with me immediately. Yeah. Yeah, there's a video I think on YouTube somewhere about the driftless fishing, the driftless. Yeah, yeah. But it looks couple. that's mm. on my radar yeah. as well. It has been for quite some time. Looks absolutely amazing. But yeah, it's amazing how these things 
can reach influence yes. now and you know sometimes we talk about social social media in a negative way but things like that really can be great yeah. to hear and you can reach out and speak to people as you're doing now and make contact and learn and the knowledge is spread all around the world in this case yeah that is it is indeed yeah global village yeah absolutely um one of the things i wanted to ask you about as well well, well seasons as well so it sounds yeah. as though you have a season is that yeah the case in South Africa as a whole? Or? It is, you know, um, the seasons used to be promulgated by law. Law is quite a messy thing yeah. in South Africa yeah, at yeah. the moment. Um, we're battling to control murder, let alone when people yeah. fish, yes, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. So there is, most of us observe a season, and our fishing club observes a, a season probably more out of a sense of uh, nostalgia than anything else. I mean, I mentioned to you that the Moy's probably got too many fish. In fact, not probably, it definitely has. And if people trampled on the reds, they, the truth is they'd be doing it a favour. But people will shudder to hear me say that mm. because it just sounds wrong. Um, and I know that in the northeastern Cape, they've dropped the fishing season and said, well, you can fish any time of the year. They've also got too many fish. Yeah. And the little village of Rhodes could do with some winter tourism. Mm. So there was a reason for it. But yeah, we do observe the season. Uh, fish are breeding in, in our winter, which is a, a, a trouble for our trout because they're breeding in the dry season when they need consistent yes. flow, and that's sometimes at risk. So we have quite a feast or famine situation. Mm. You have a good autumn, like we had last autumn. You have good flows, and you'll have a good breeding season, and you'll have fish all over the place, arguably too, too many. Then you go through a drought, and you'll have a big thinning of the population. We went through a big drought in 2015, 2016, and um, since then, until this year, the average size of our browns in those home rivers of mine have been just the best they've been in 30 years. They've been right. phenomenal. And what do you yeah. mean by average size? So, yeah, I mentioned 8-inch fish on the moi. Yeah. Really, yeah. on an average year, if I look at my 30-something years, 8-inch on the moi is you'd catch lots of those. And mm. if you've got a, if you've got a sort of 2-pound fish, it would be really great. Um, the Mgani, lower numbers, more inclined to catch a 2-pound fish. Mm. In the last three or four years, oh, I mean... Peter, I got my best fish ever on the Bushmans on in January this year. It was 22 inches long. Wow. Um, like, look, a river fish, a lean yeah. fish. It probably didn't touch the scales at four pounds if I'd weighed it. But that's a really good fish. Wow. Um, yeah, four or five pound fish. It'd be like a handful of those have come out in the last three seasons. Great excitement. Yeah. And of course, a number of people have got into fly fishing during that period. Well, they're in for a big disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I need to warn them. It's not always like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was interesting. You touch on that having, we've, we've sort of got around a little bit with this, but um, how did, because I said to Paul at the time when we were doing the podcast, I didn't know how I felt because I knew I'd never beat that. How does that feel to you having caught that fish? Now, yeah. do you think you just kind do you of want to beat it? it? Do you, yeah. yeah, you just yeah. kind of bank it and say, well, if it happens again, that'll be glorious. But I'll just live in the, yeah. in the memory. And that was one of those ones where I had no one with me. Um, and I, the thing wouldn't fit in the net. Um, I was battling. I got it into the net with its tail sticking out. And I, and I got the camera out with one hand and tried to man, got the fly out. I think it was Barbless Fly came out and I maneuvered it into position to try and get that. And the instant I was about to hit the shutter, it sprung yeah. off. So I don't even have a photo. Oh. And I'm sure none of my mates believe no. it. <laughs> but it's burned in the memory. Oh, it's there for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fantastic. One of the things, I, one of the fish I wanted to ask you about was yellowfish. And I think, again, in East Sleep Fish, we had a piece on yellowfish. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about those? And what, what family, are they a bit of carp I, I can tell you very little, yeah. But because and I'll explain myself. But the the yellow you often get 
people see pictures of them and call them a carp. And I know mm. that my colleagues who are really into yellowfish get offended by that for whatever reason. Um, but they're, and I don't know even the Latin name of them, but they'll tell me that they're not a carp. And they're, uh, they're definitely an athletic fish, uh, strong fighters, there's no doubt, um, and really become quite a, a prized quarry. Um, and they, you asked me earlier downstairs over breakfast, do they compete with the trout? And they don't, they coexist. And the, the yellows breed in summer, the, the trout breed in, in winter. They no doubt predate on one another's young, but not to the extent that it harms either species. The yellows um, are found in the warmer waters, generally, and they all, they'll migrate up in their breeding season to a certain extent and no further. Um, and I don't have a problem with yellowfish at all. I, the reason I don't fish for them is because I just love the upland areas. I'm, mm. I'm allergic to heat. I yeah. fish up in the mountains, and that's where the trout are found. Right. Um, yellowfishing, though, is, there's no doubt about it. It's a great experience. And I've, I had two young Canadians come and stay with me a couple of years ago, and they were just so excited. I took them down to this bushveld location. Um, and you need to understand that bushveld is, is warm. The, the moment you see a thorn tree, you won't see a trout. Um, and it's warmer. But it's where most of uh, South Africa's game is. So these guys were fly fishing for yellowfish, uh, and one took a picture of the other with a giraffe in the background, wow. you know, which, which I can understand is hugely appealing. I know? can't promise you that today. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the yellows are, are great, and they're indigenous, and they've got a, a big following and a growing following, and it's wonderful. And, and our, our club is encouraging that. In fact, as I'm sitting here, I'm sorry not to be with my mates who are conducting a yellowfishing clinic on the Amkamas River. Uh, teaching guys and they yearn them for those quite a yes. lot yeah. yeah but but beautiful fish indigenous um, and and lots of them and, and lots of places you can go fishing for them and do you get sort of younger you know whether the younger cooler anglers is that where some of them will migrate to yes yeah because definitely, it's a yeah. different a, species and, and there's a whole following of guys who are trying to see how many species they can catch on fly um, they like the fact that it's indigenous. They like to, they like to go to an unexplored venue. So those fish have always been around, but they've never been considered a quarry. So you'll find a river that that's had yellowfish in all the time. It's never been considered a fly fishing venue, and and there are people who are pushing those boundaries and going off and finding a so-called new river, and opening that up. And that's exciting. Mm, brilliant. We're going to talk a bit tackle. You talked about that. Do you have a hall of fame piece of tackle, a piece that you always use? Will never part with is there something that's your um, so I've got a mate who, who's just got a forest of fly rods and he, he, he says to me Andrew I promise you I'm not a tackle slut yeah. <laughs> I love that term yes. and I said to him Sean that's exactly what you are <laughs> uh, but I'm not one of those I, I've got a I've got a I don't have a huge I've just got the tackle I need you know but um, yeah I, I battle to, to think of anything there's, there's one thing that springs to mind and this is it's not because I revere this piece of tackle, it's just a kind of a useful piece of tackle. I've got a fly reel that my grandfather owned. Uh, it's a hardy lightweight. Oh, nice. Um, yep. It doesn't have the perforated drum, so it's right. a solid drum. Yeah. Um, I've tried to look it up at some point on, online, and I think it's late 1930s, early 1940s. And I've actually, that's what I've brought on this trip. Brilliant. For no reason other than that's what's got my three-weight line on it, mm. and it's a practical piece of kit. But yeah, that's an old fly reel, and it's beautifully built. It's never had a repair or anything. I've never tried to restore it or anything. I, I, yeah, I just use it because it's a practical, good piece of tackle. My guess is it's probably worth something as well, more than it, it sentimentally. Might it might be, but it's, it's more. But it's worth more yeah. to me on the flower. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. good to use them and, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. 
So South Africa, we're going to go and hopefully, and I know you're going to be doing a little bit of fishing in the UK. Is there somewhere you've always wanted to travel to? Is there somewhere on the list? Yeah, yeah of course there is. Yeah. Go on, <laughs> tell me. Yeah. Well, there's so many of them. Our PD and I often chat about this and say, well, we less inclined to go after fish where they're so much bigger than what we've got that we'll have to buy a new tackle. We want to go and <laughs> have an experience where the fish are perhaps a little bit bigger than we've got or you know, easier to spot, but it's still applicable and we can take some of the learning back. And it's something we talk about often, but obviously New Zealand comes to mind. Um, we've got one of my one of my mates is uh, married to a Slovenian and he actually lives most of the year in Slovenia and he's now put on these tours there and of course a lot of our, our guys from South Africa have gone over as a result because of that link uh, and then of course in the States yeah the Driftless is an area I really yeah. want to get to yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I mean you'll pick up from that the fish there aren't no. bigger and they're yeah. not better and they're not yeah. smarter but I, I've just followed them and I've gained a sort of um, a feeling for the area and I, I want to go there yeah. Mm. Um, yeah so yeah those are a couple of them I've looked at Eastern Europe and I've read a couple of pieces that were neat sleep fish from some of the guys you've had some writers from yeah from Bulgaria and yeah. uh, Stan Mankoff um, there was a guy who wrote about somewhere else in Eastern Europe as well and I can't quite remember. it might have been Poland there's all these sort of yeah. weird and well, I, I think I'm inclined to want to go there because no one else has. Yeah, that's where I'm, I'm a bit you. like that. I'm against the flow. I don't want to go mainstream. Yeah. You said yeah. me earlier, you, you like a salmon, you go upstream. I'm the same. I'd, yeah. I'd like to go yeah. where people say, what, you went yeah. where to go fishing? Never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. I know I was researching Turkey recently and yeah. places like that. You know, the weird, yeah. slightly different. I've, I haven't got the nerve to go, you know, there's. they say there's trout in Persia somewhere, but I think that's probably a bit lively yeah. <laughs> to go down there at the moment. Yeah. Bhutan, Morocco, is, eh? Morocco, the, yes, the yeah, Mountains, absolutely. I've looked at that. Yeah, yeah. the places like that. Um, they're on the map. There's a, the the border between them and Algeria is a dotted line. That tells yes. you something. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And there's all these. And as I said, you know, that Chris Newton's book really is fascinating. Seeing where they're distributed, and there's weird. There's some island that France owns that they put trout in. You cannot fish there. You're not allowed on this trout. island. And there's trout and nobody fishes for them. Peter, I think you and I have got to go there. Uh, you, you can't get there. They won't allow <laughs> anyone on this place. And it, places like that, I would love to. Yeah. Um, a James Bond sort of yeah. fly-in, fly-out sort of thing. And, yeah, um, beach something instead of night. taking your... Um, your uh, wetsuit off you have a waders underneath your wetsuit and stuff like that instead of the yeah. dinner jacket james bond sort of thing but places like that to me are really interesting bhutan to me yeah i think is I mean, my I'd dream never, i'd never person. heard the trout in bhutan yeah i mean you're the first person telling yeah. me that yeah. i saw it first off it was a wonderful tv program called a river somewhere okay and they were the guys um uh, australian guys i think i hope i've got that right who did a series of television programs. They were involved, I think, with a great film called The Dish with Sam Neill, and it's about the Apollo and the, how they use a sa uh, satellite station in Australia. But they did this series and they fished first in Australia and New Zealand. Right. It obviously went very well, down very well, so they got a slightly bigger budget. They went to Scotland fishing for salmon. They went to Idaho and caught some brook trout. And it was kind of interesting that they fished, but also they'd take a fish, cook it, celebrate it. And okay. so it was a bit of everything. And then they went to Bataan and fished there. And I think also we had a program here with Charles Rangeley Wilson. And I think he's got a, he went there as well. Okay. And it just looks amazing. You know, you're in the Himalayas. And yep. again, for East Sleep Fish, we had some guys guiding Himalayan fly fishing or something, catching masir and, yes. and trout in the Himalayas. Yeah. And then places like that, to me, yeah. like we said, I, I think was very, very similar that I don't want to follow the flow. I'd yeah. much rather 
tread my own path through yeah. long grass. Avoid and the tourist bus. Yeah, I think so. That's you know they're they're all good, and I've, I'd never say no to going to anywhere. But I kind of like going somewhere different, and because size isn't important to me, it doesn't matter. And I think in Bhutan they're not big fish, generally speaking, yeah. um, because they're not taken there. Because I think because they're Buddhist. I don't think okay. they kill the fish. Okay. So nice. that it's similar to what you were saying, plenty of fish, but all of a certain size. Yep. But just to say I'd call a fish in the Himalayas would be really super yeah. cool. So I think that's on, on my list. I cannot believe we've talked for over an hour already. <laughs> it's been really, for me, fascinating listening about fishing that is so different yet so similar that talking to somebody who feels the same way about the fishing as well has been wonderful and it's been i know or i hope our listeners will find it equally as interesting learning about fishing that i'm sure many of us haven't experienced um but hearing a little bit about it and how the fishing isn't really that different is it we're all singing from that same hymn sheet and those fish that have been transported are pretty similar. I think they're a lot leaving, aren't they? Your brand yeah, trout. Yeah, a lot yeah. of them are. A lot of other influences since then. But yes. initially, yeah, especially a lot leaving ones. Yeah. So you know, you'd find those on the, I think, on the test on the itching, I think, possibly, yeah. and um, and elsewhere as well. And it's just really interesting being able to sit down and talk to you about these things and your passion for your fishing and their environment as well. So I would like to thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to meet you. Um, and now we're going to go and do some fishing. So, Andrew, thank you so much for for sitting down and, been, and been listening. Yeah. List, thank you and listening to my questions. We're going to go and hit the tour. We're going to see if we can find a salmon. I'm praying the river has dropped. The clarity yesterday, as I said, was six six eight inches or so, so yeah. it wasn't great. Um, but we're going to give it a go. There, the sun's out. Yeah. We're going to give it a go. Um, before the rain, I think there's a rain forecast for about three, somewhere yeah. around there. Um, and we'll enjoy some time on the river. I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as me. This is um, an offshoot, as I always say, of Fly Culture magazine. Um, if you've not seen Fly Culture magazine, it is a quarterly publication. It's a hard copy magazine. Um, we're fiercely independent. We have no adverts. It's all 100% content. It's 100 pages of 100% content. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about it, you can visit our flyculturemag.com website. We're having a new one built, which should be coming very, very soon, that will be including videos, um, tackle reviews, other bits and pieces on there as well, um, and content as well for you to enjoy. I hope you've enjoyed this one. You can find more details of Fly Culture via the usual Um, social media channels on Facebook we update the page very regularly as we do with Instagram Uh, you can find us on Twitter as well so we're there we're always posting bits and pieces on um, the internet so I hope you enjoy those this is Pete Ty just signing off I really um, hope you'll listen to the next one if you've enjoyed this please um, leave us a review on iTunes I'd hugely appreciate it and I look forward to doing another podcast very, very soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you to Andrew once more and um, good fishing to you.